You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Let us pray together. God of unfailing love, you are so compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So we draw near to your throne with confidence that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, today we confess that we are needy people. We need you so desperately every day, every hour, every moment, and we need you for everything. We come to you as little children, utterly dependent on their Father. And we delight in knowing that our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask. Lord, we especially lift up our sister Deborah and her sick grandmother to you. We pray for your sustaining grace to uphold her and her entire family. We also pray for our brother Zach and his father who is in a coma. We pray for your peace that transcends all understanding to, to guard their hearts. If you are so willing, grant healing for them and for all who are touched by sickness here today. Now, as we incline our ears to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things and cause us to see Christ and his gospel more clearly and brightly. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So around this time of the year, I like to ask Christians, what is the significance of October 31st? And immediately they think, Halloween. Maybe some of you are thinking that right now. But there is something so much more important and exciting about October 31st, and that is Reformation Day, where Protestant Christians celebrate the recovery of the gospel from the darkness of superstition in the medieval church. Sadly, this Christian holiday is largely forgotten by many churches. And so on the last Sunday of every October, we make it a point to celebrate the Protestant Reformation together as a church family. To that end, our sermon today comes from a very important text of scripture that started it all. The very verse that sparked the Reformation over 500 years ago. Please open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And it is considered by many theologians as the greatest book ever written. It contains the clearest and the most extensive exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And here in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, we find the thesis, the main point from which the entire book is formed. The subject is the gospel, the good news. Though the gospel is foolishness to the world, to Paul, it is the most dire and glorious message to humanity that is of first importance. He understood that the gospel was the only hope for this perishing world. Friends, I ask, is there any message you have to the world that you would die to proclaim? I don't know what message could be possibly be worthy of your life. But for the gospel, Paul shall not hesitate to die. Die to proclaim it. He says in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. This is not like wearing a Christian t-shirt or sharing a Bible verse on your social media. But Paul was mocked, imprisoned, beaten, and stoned. Yet, neither ridicule or torture could empty him of his boldness for the gospel. He was not ashamed. Paul saw himself as a jar of clay, cheap and replaceable. And yet this jar of clay carried the gospel, which was like a treasure of infinite value and worth. So precious and so essential is the gospel that the church must proclaim it to the ends of the earth, even through the shedding of blood. Likewise, the church must preserve the gospel from any impurity and contamination. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Living in a developed city like Toronto, we expect that when we turn on the tap, we will get clean water. Toronto's tap water is safe to drink right out of the tap. And in my home, we purchased a Brita filter for an extra layer of protection and to remove even more impurities from the water. You see, we really care about the purity of our water. We don't want to get sick. However, when it comes to the purity of the gospel, people seem to be content with a shallow and incomplete gospel. 
or even worse, they are deceived by a different gospel. The corruption and false teaching in our modern churches today have made our souls very sick. Brothers and sisters, do not settle for anything less, but drink living water from the fountain of the pure gospel. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It was not a new branch of religion or a novel teaching, but it was a recovery of the gospel as faithful men went back to the Bible and saw for themselves what Jesus Christ and his apostles actually taught. Our traditions and our church fathers are important and helpful to us, of course. And yet, our traditions and our church leaders are not infallible. Rather, any human idea and any human person, as great as they might be, are prone to error. Just a brief study of church history will teach you that we and our forefathers have made a lot of mistakes time and time again. Scandal after scandal, division after division. There were times when the church was like a city on the hill, shining her light brightly to the world. And there were other times when her light was very dim and was a companion of the darkness. And sadly, the latter was the case for the medieval church. They strayed from the teachings of the scriptures and they were steeped in their own traditions and human rules. Isn't that what happened to the Jewish people in Jesus' day? They had the privilege of being God's chosen people. They had the privilege of being recipients of God's words and commands through his prophets. And yet, they worshipped their religion over their God. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus sharply rebukes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of God's commands and are holding on to human traditions. In the early 16th century, the church's practice of selling indulgences had reached its height of corruption. Pope Leo X authorized indulgences, which were slips of paper, guaranteeing the forgiveness of sins for whoever would donate large sums of money, which was used to reconstruct the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the priests were instructed to craft their sermons to persuade the common people to empty their pockets and to give more to the church. 
And one priest by the name of Tetzel was very persuasive indeed. Allow me to read you some excerpts from his sermon. He says, Friends of this town, you have heard how your loved ones suffer in purgatory. You have heard their cries. How shamefully you go about your business. You spend your money on every little trifle and oh, how your loved ones suffer. And now you have a very special deal reserved for you. For an extra little builder, you can free yourself from purgatory, give to the church your might, and the gracious Holy Father in Rome will see to it that you and all your dead relatives will be in paradise itself. And then comes his very famous rhyme. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Can you imagine the pastor preaching this on the pulpit? Long and behold, hordes of people in every town would line up to empty out their pockets because in exchange for their coins, they were given the slip of paper, which was their assurance that all of their sins and all the sins of their loved ones were forgiven. Well, during this dark era in church history, there was one priest in Germany that God used to bring about a reform. And his name was Martin Luther. He had grown disgruntled about the practice of selling indulgences, and he had concluded that it was inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture. And so, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, challenging Tetzel and protesting against the church's abuse of power. The people were deceived by all kinds of superstition and myth. They longed for paradise, and they thought the Pope could save them. They thought the church could save them. They thought their wealth could save them. But the Pope and the church cannot save anybody. And you certainly cannot buy your way to God. You cannot impress your way to God. You cannot earn your way to God. But the apostle tells us in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation. You see, it is God who saves the sinner. It is not the might of men or their self-effort. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Just as a dead corpse cannot hear nor see, we cannot hear nor see the things of God. 
just as a dead corpse cannot move or do anything, we cannot move closer to heaven or do anything to save ourselves. Our sinful nature renders us unable to love God over ourselves, unable to choose God over our sin, unable to obey God over our flesh. And because of our sins, we incur the judgment of God. The holy wrath of God burns. The fire has started. The furnace is hot. And hell is prepared to receive the wicked and godless. But God. But God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. The Son of God was led like a lamb to the slaughter upon the hills of Calvary. And there he was nailed to the rugged cross and pierced for our transgressions. Christ stood in judgment in our place. Christ satisfied the wrath of God in our place. And Christ not only died for our sins, but he lived the perfect and righteous life that we could never live. He obeyed all the laws and commands of God that we could not fulfill. He earned the green stamp of approval from the Father, and then he gave it to us. He imputed his righteousness to us. You see, we receive not just the forgiveness of sins, but we receive the, both the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of perfect obedience, freely, by grace alone. We do not deserve it. We do not earn it. But it is the free gift of God. But the question is, how do we receive this gift? How does a sinner receive the gift of salvation? Well, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Faith is the hands which receives the gift and opens the gift. However, Martin Luther had not quite figured this out. When he nailed his 95 Theses, he knew that the gospel the church was preaching was corrupt. But his own understanding of the gospel was still incomplete. That is, until two years later, when he was studying the Bible in the monastery and discovered Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which read, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther had lived his life thinking 
that God was angry with him, that God hated him because he knew that he failed to meet God's perfect standards. He pushed his body and his mind to the breaking point to gain right standing before God. He constantly fasted, prayed more than any other monk. Yet, he was only overcome with self-hatred and doubt because he never felt that he was righteous before God. Sometimes he would spend six hours confessing his sins to a priest. Even as he left the confessor, he would have an impure thought and immediately he would rush back to confess his sin. This was the insanity of Luther. But when he discovered verse 17, it was as if a light bulb turned on and he could finally see for the first time the pure rays of the gospel light. Luther describes this moment as so. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God and justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. Friends, have you had this paradise moment that Luther describes? the heavy weight of sin taken off your shoulders, the burden of your guilt, of your shame, lifted and wiped clean. Have you experienced this before? If not, perhaps you are not drinking from the fountain of the pure gospel. Didn't our Lord Jesus say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Is that your experience today? Far too many Christians 
still carry the dead weight of their self-righteousness and the demands of keeping the law. Listen to me carefully. Nobody, nobody is made righteous by their obedience to the law. Nobody. If we could obey the law, then we wouldn't need a Savior, and Christ died in vain. But the Apostle tells us plainly, the righteous shall live by faith. If righteousness was acquired by our obedience to the law, by our good works, by our performance, then hell would be full and heaven would be empty. Moreover, Paul does not even say the righteous shall live by faith and works, but it is by faith alone. Sola fide, faith alone. This is the heartbeat of the Reformation. Sinners are justified by faith alone. This truth is so important that the great reformer John Calvin said that it is the hinge on which salvation turns. And Martin Luther said, it is a chief article of the whole Christian doctrine. On this doctrine, the church stands or falls. Sinners are justified by faith alone. And we must not add any other demand. We must not attach any other requirement. The church must not bind the conscience of men and women with human rules and human traditions. But her message must be clear. Sinners do not earn their salvation in any part. If we did, it means God ultimately saved us because there was something about us, something special about us, something good in us. Such a distortion undermines the grace of God and breeds the pride of men. But the gospel humbles us to the dust of the earth. It humbles us low. And it magnifies the power and the grace and the glory of God. That's why after Paul unfolds the gospel, he asks this rhetorical question in Romans chapter 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, there are three important things that I must share on the topic of faith. Firstly, 
the nature of faith. What is it? What is faith? Well, according to the author of Hebrews, faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. But true and saving faith is not just some vague, blind belief. The Protestant reformers carefully searched the scriptures and they recognized three different elements of what defines true saving faith. Try to examine your own faith and see if your faith demonstrates the three elements. First, the first element is what they called noticia, which means knowledge. This is the intellectual content of what one believes. Faith always includes a set of beliefs, a faith statement. A person who has true faith must have correct and accurate information about Jesus Christ and his gospel. The second element is what they called a census, which means assent. And this is the conviction that the content of your faith is true. It is true. It's not enough for you to have the right knowledge and information concerning Christ, but do you believe that it's factually true? The third element is what they called fiducia, which means trust. Faith requires a personal trust. Faith cannot remain an intellectual enterprise. But saving faith is a notion of trusting, of leaning, of depending upon Christ for your life, for your salvation. As the good old hymn goes, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Secondly, the evidence of faith. How do we know that our faith is true and sincere? How do we know? Well, in James chapter 2, it says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, true saving faith is evidenced by our good works and our transformation of life. Martin Luther put it this way, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What he meant is that if our faith is true and sincere, if indeed it is saving faith, then our lives will reflect it by bearing its fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Genuine Christians actually desire, they actually desire to follow the example and character of Christ. If they do not, I question, why are you Christian at all? Genuine Christians fight the good fight of faith as they daily deny themselves and pursue conformity to Christ. But remember this, our pursuit of holiness is not for the sake of earning approval from God. We don't try to earn our approval from God. Rather, we labor to slay and to kill our sins and to strive for holiness, knowing that we already possess full approval from God in Jesus Christ. We already have the full and highest approval of the Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. That's the difference between the hired servant and the prodigal son, isn't it? When the prodigal son returned home, he just wanted to work and be fed, treated like an employee. But the father didn't want a contracted business-type relationship with his son. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop treating God as our employer, who we need to impress. But take him at his, at his word. Take him at his word. He is our good and heavenly Father who is slow to anger and abounding in love. Sometimes you might stumble and fall, but he will not abandon you. Do not belittle him with your doubts. Sometimes he may discipline you, but know that he disciplines like a loving father who disciplines his children. God loves you with an everlasting love. Thirdly, the object of faith. The object of faith. It is so important to understand this. It is so important to understand that it is not our faith that saves us. But it is the object of our faith that saves us. And the object of our faith is Christ. Do you recognize the difference here? Your faith in Jesus Christ does not save you. It is Christ who saves you through faith. In other words, your faith has no power. Your faith has no power to save you. It is not efficacious on its own. I don't care if your faith is strong. I don't care if you have a lot of faith. Your faith is powerless to save you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, faith is the tongue that begs pardon, the hands which receive it, and the eyes which sees it, but it is not the price which buys it. 
Your faith did not die on the cross for your sins. But it is the Almighty Son of God who went to the cross and who declared, It is finished! It is Him who rose again in victory and who was exalted on high. It is Christ who redeemed you. It is Christ who rescued you. And yet, some Christians take pride in their faith. They boast of the strength of their faith. They have turned their faith into some kinds of works of merit. What a gross distortion. Faith is merely the instrument of our justification, as opposed to the grounds of our justification. Faith is simply the instrument or medium through which we receive justification. But the grounds, the solid grounds and the basis for our, our justification is Christ. It is Christ and His finished work on the cross and His righteousness imputed to us. Consider a frozen lake. How do you know it's safe to step onto the ice? No matter how much faith you have on that ice, if that ice is not thick enough, if it is not strong enough, you will fall through. On the other hand, you can have very little faith in that ice. But if that ice is strong enough, you will not fall through even if you jump around. Likewise, it is not your faith and not the amount of your faith that will keep you from falling. You're not standing on your faith, but you're standing on the solid foundation of Christ. He will not let you fall through. He is the Savior. You see, it is the strength of our mighty Savior that saves you and sustains you and keeps you alive. He is the immovable rock of our salvation on which we stand. What Martin Luther discovered in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 was the glorious gospel of grace. As one pastor put it, if Luther was God's volcano, it was Romans chapter 1, verse 17 that caused him to erupt. And the movement of the Reformation exploded as people were hungry for the truth. All they wanted was the truth. And they finally stopped settling for anything less. Beloved church, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These five principles are a gift to us from the Reformation. 
as they help to guard and to clarify the gospel of first importance. But the treasure of the gospel had been there all along, buried under the layers of dead traditions and corruption. This treasure was given to us not by the reformers. This treasure was given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And his apostles were not ashamed to proclaim it. And we too have been commissioned to preserve the gospel and to declare it clearly and boldly for the whole world to hear. And so may God help us to never turn to a different gospel and to always contend for the truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Without your word, the church will be so lost. Your word, your word is like a lamp to our feet. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for this truth revealed to us, the true and pure gospel, that sinners are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by your grace. And so, God, may we hide this in our hearts, and may we proclaim it boldly to the whole world to hear. We thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.